Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators, a community of math teacher educators learning to teach math teachers better. I'm your co-host, Jen Wolf, and joining me today is co-host Dusty Jones. Hey, Dusty. Hi, Jen. And co-host Joel Amadon. Hey, Joel. Hey, Jen. Good to be with you all today. Yeah. So today we're talking with Joni Wilson. Joni is an assistant professor at the University of Virginia. Her research focuses on examining and outlining instructional practices that empower and honor historically marginalized students, specifically in the context of conceptually oriented mathematics classrooms. Her projects include developing and validating classroom observation tools that attend to aspects of equitable mathematics teaching and learning. Through this work, she supports school and district leaders instructional coaches, and teachers as they work to understand and develop practices that aim for equity. As a former high school teacher from Baltimore, she combines lessons learned from her experiences as a teacher and researcher in her instruction. We are talking with Joni today so that she may share some of her experiences in mathematics teacher education and her work in developing practices and supports centered on equity. Welcome, Joni. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. So thankful to have you on the podcast today. Of course. Yeah. So could you uh, take a minute to introduce yourself beyond what I already shared? Like, what are some things that we missed? Oh, I was going to say, I think you did a really nice job summarizing, especially in terms of who I am as a math teacher, educator, and a math educational researcher. Um, but if you want additional information about me, I'm... Uh, <laughs> I just started at UVA, so I'm I'm trying to learn a new space right now. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, yeah, I think that there's so much that um, we're really excited for you to share your brilliance uh, with us and the larger community of AMTE. So just thank you so much for being here. So to get us started, um, can you talk a little bit about like, how did you start teaching math teachers? Like what got you into that? Yeah, so I started teaching math teachers in graduate school when I was working as a TA supporting courses offered at Vanderbilt University. And in terms of why I started teaching math teachers for my very first opportunity, Paul Cobb told me that I was going to be TAing for him. And so I was like, okay, so this is what we're doing. We're doing and this. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for telling me. <laughs> but it was cool to be there and to see him do his thing. Um, but I did have other opportunities um, to TA. And for those, I volunteered because I wanted to see other methods courses and learn from other teaching styles and generally get more experience. So, for example, Paul Cobb tended to focus on elementary grades, but I got a chance to work with um, Alana Horn and Melissa Grisafi as well. And I think Alana Horn was focusing on secondary math. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's wonderful because then you were able to probably bring in some of your experiences as a former high school teacher in Baltimore, right? And see how that played out in a different context being in Nashville, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly, that's one of the reasons why Lonnie said, oh, your your contributions are so important here. So yeah, that's very true. What is the best advice you received when you started teaching math teachers? Well, I remember asking Paul a question, and to be honest, I still wrestle with this question. 
and I'm still investigating and trying to learn from others. But my question is, in teaching math teachers, there's so much to discuss and learn together. You know, there's the idea of what it means and looks like to do math and Mm. what it means and looks like to teach math and discussing how some of the ways that we might have been taught or you know, the ways that we quote unquote learned how to do math and how those may be problematic and discussing why it may be problematic. Um, For example, scrutinizing the I do, we do, you do model in terms of what opportunities are provided for students when this is the only model you use to teach everything, Mm -hmm. you know, who gets pushed to the margins, who gets left behind, which voice or voices are privileged which voices get shut down or shut up in this method. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also the identity work, especially for elementary teachers around how they may identify or position themselves in relation to notions of who is quote unquote good at math or why they might, why they might not necessarily see themselves as math doers. And there's reflective work around that because, you know, if we, don't take time to stop and interrogate and disrupt those ideas, we we run the risk of projecting these insecurities on students. And then before you know it, we have another generation of people with the same problematic ideas. Um, there's also the actual methods of teaching and sharing ideas about how to support students as they are developing their own thinking around specific concepts. There are also bigger practices like lesson planning, launching a task, facilitating whole class discussions, facilitating small group work, pre-service, and in-service teachers need opportunity to practice or at least opportunities to approximate these practices. Um, There's the nuanced and delicate balance of trying to provide students with support as they wrestle with math um, without lowering the cognitive demand or over scaffolding or over proceduralizing. Um, And then there's the math content itself and making sure that we attend to our own misconceptions that we may that we may have developed, um, and so the list goes on and on. But the reality is that we typically only have fourteen class sessions to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question is, how do you decide what to prioritize? And like I said, the first time I wrestled with this, I was TAing for Paul Cobb, and I believe I asked him, and I think he said something like, "You have to place your bet somewhere." Mm. And basically what I took away from that was that you could try to do all of the things at a very shallow level and your students may walk away with a superficial understanding of some of the things, or you could be very deliberate in emphasizing a couple of really specific aspects of teaching math throughout your course. So I've tried to design my classes such that I support teachers in developing certain dispositions and in developing what I would call their math teaching instincts. So for example, instead of focusing on providing teachers with specific activities or tasks that are like, this is a good activity to do when you're teaching this concept or make sure you do this task when you're teaching that concept, I try to support them in understanding some of the aspects that make up a rich task. So that, for example, in selecting a so-called real-world math problem, they can distinguish between what I call a naked problem that has been dressed up with words mm-hmm. versus a conceptually oriented, cognitively demanding, culturally relevant task 
with rich opportunities to discuss mathematically and socially interesting concepts and topics. Because there are a lot of resources out there and not all of the resources that are available may be equally rich in terms of these opportunities for students learning. So I'm trying to support my teachers in their ability to discern while they're selecting or looking through the resources, if that makes sense. Yeah, because you're really getting them to think about how can they be critical about what they're developing, right? While also simultaneously listening to and maybe even interrogating the intuitions they have in the development right. of that that work that they're doing with, with students. And like you said, we got 14 <laughs> sessions sometimes with these folks. So how do we prioritize what we're going to do with our teacher candidates. Yeah. 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 I love the idea of, I'm, and I'm, I bet you everyone else in the room is thinking about where am I placing my bets this semester? Like where have I, I mean, cause you know, you, you have, you've done something or you're doing what you said, Joni is just, you've done like a surface level, you know, just skimming um, on a lot of topics rather than, actually placing your bet, like I'm moving all my chips to one spot if we want to go to Vegas or whatever, but like saying like, these are the, these are the value places that I'm, I'm putting on this course, these 14 sessions that I have. Um, Yeah. I, I really like that idea to just kind of makes it concrete. Like where do my, where am I placing the value on? I I love that. Yeah. Because we think about how they're going to take that into, take that up in their practice. Right. So if we're thinking about this idea of placing bets and, figuring out what are the the things that we really want teacher candidates to focus on, then we really need to, to think about like, what are the experiences that we want to co-create with our teachers so that they will adopt those practices when they go in and work with students. Exactly. Yeah, Joni, Joni <laughs> I like the way that um, what you've described you're doing uh, sounds like it gives the teachers uh, the resources they need to do further study because we we know that learners don't stop when they walk out of the mm-hmm. classroom or when they graduate from the mm-hmm. program. Um, but if we can give them the resources to continue. So when they get in a particular situation, like, oh, I'm teaching linear equation. I'm supposed to teach linear equations next week. Uh, then they can find those resources and apply. I mean, that's the desire that they apply those things. Whereas if, you know, in my classes, I had given them the go-to linear equations lesson, you know, that, that might be relevant for the next three years or something. And then, then it's expired. There's a new technology or something like that. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't helped them by giving them that one plug-in. So I really like that. Uh, I really like how you've applied that advice from Paul Cobb. Right. And I think something that occurred to me while you were talking was the fact that these are the things that we want them to do for their students. Now, mind you, it's in the context of t- of math. So just like you don't want to like proceduralize, you know, a math concept because in the event that they get a novel prod- problem or, you know, a new task, they might feel lost or they might not know what to do. You want to support them in developing skills that they can apply or, um, you know, a disposition that like, I can do this or perseverance, or, you know, you want, you want them to develop the tools, I think is what you called it, to be able to attack and approach anything that comes their way. So, Johnny, earlier you brought up, you know, we've got these like 
14 sessions with teachers. So we really need to do like place our bet. So then that requires us as MTEs to kind of focus like what our priorities are. So I wondered if you might be able to offer up a word that helps you center the work that you do with um, teaching math teachers. Is there something that comes to mind that you're like, I focus on this because from this, I think about all these other nuances in, in supporting uh, and teaching mathematics teachers. Yeah. Um, and for full transparency, at first I thought about the word approximating because in every context that I've taught, I try to think about what is this class designed to prepare students to do? So whether it's in the context of K-12 math content classes or a pre-service or in-service math methods course, or even a doctoral course on academic writing, I think about questions like, what are we trying to support these students in doing? Mm -hmm. And then I attempt to develop opportunities for them to practice doing those things. But in talking with, with you, I realized that my word could actually be alignment. Um, in other words, aligning my beliefs, that's to say, I personally feel like if I'm asking you as a teacher to develop a practice in your work with students, then I need to think about the extent to which I'm implementing this practice with you. And I'm not perfect at doing this yet, but I'm trying to get better and better as I go. So as an example of what I mean, um, one of the ideas that has come up in my research is the idea of supporting an environment where students feel comfortable. So nurturing a space where students are comfortable sharing their thinking, even if translanguaging is involved or if code mm -hmm. switching is involved and nurturing a space where students feel more comfortable contributing unconventional thoughts or where students feel comfortable trying out novel ideas or attempting problems that they've never experienced before. And what I've observed is that part of this involves the teacher demonstrating. So code switching for themselves or translanguaging or offering up unconventional strategies. Another part of nurturing such a space involves the teacher being approachable, being vulnerable, being transparent, showing emotions, making mistakes, sharing aspects from their own lives, using humor um, in ways that are not at any student's expense, of course. Um, right, right, right. That joy, right? Yeah. Bringing in that joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just basically showing care and making connections with students and their lives and their emotions and their vulnerabilities. So if I'm advocating that teachers should take this up and that teaching involves showing up in these ways, then that means that I need to think about how am I showing up, whether it be in the K-12 math content class or in the pre-service or in-service math methods course or in doctoral courses or even in mentoring and supervising um, research assistance on my research projects. Yeah, thanks for, for sharing that, um, Joni. So I wondered, you know, like with advice that you've received, what what's some advice that you might um, give to someone else that's starting out in this role of supporting uh, math teacher educators? Um, I think the advice of being selective and very deliberate in emphasizing a few aspects of the practice of teaching throughout your course that you can iterate and reiterate in many different ways um, that's probably what I would share with someone starting out. Mm, I like that when you say iterate and reiterate, because earlier when you were talking about like 
to some degree, like ha- having that alignment, right. in your practices and kind of showing that with your <laughs> teacher candidates, it just made me think about the next level of like unpacking and reflecting with them, like why you made the decisions that you made in doing mm-hmm. that, you know, it's like that next level of like being critical and reflective. Why did I just make this move or do this with you? Like it was very intentional and then being very like open and transparent and reflective about that intentionality that's there. So right. I think that's beautiful. So you do so much wonderful work. How do you set boundaries and priorities so that you can get the things done that you need to get done, your heart work, and enjoy your life outside of, you know, the academy? <laughs> yeah, so this is something that I'm still struggling with and I'm trying to do better at. I think um, COVID and a series of tragic events have helped me to focus and prioritize a little better. But um, one thing that I try to do is remember that there are no real emergencies in our job. Mm. Um, I have a sister who works in anesthesiology, like in her job. Yes. You need to be be on top of it at all times. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, the beauty of that is that when she leaves that job, there's nothing else for her to do. You know, we're on the other end of the spectrum where we can always be working. Mm -hmm. But in exchange for that, there's like no one's going to die. If I do not respond to the email at 1245 a.m. that a student (laughs) reaches out to me with. um, So just reminding myself of that, like that's one of the privileges of having this type of work, of being in this type of space is that, you know, the email can wait. Um, And then also staying in tune with my body and my energy levels. So um, being thoughtful about when I plan to do certain things, like five o'clock on a Friday is probably not the time to sit down and start that writing project that you want. (laughs) Yeah, I heard that. (laughs) Um, But also on a day-to-day basis, like checking in with myself, like I've read this line 15 times. I'm clearly done for the day and being good with being done for the day and closing my laptop. Um, And also preserving at least one non-work day during the week. It usually happens on the weekend and having reverse priority time. And I call it that in my head so that I know that, okay, we're reversing the priorities during this time. For me, it's nights and weekends. And by that, I mean, during nights and weekends, if there's laundry to be done, you need to cook your meals, like that is an important part of your life. So that's the priority right now, not responding to emails, not trying to finish up a writing assignment. Um, And then also thinking about the fact that tasks take the time you give it. And sometimes good enough has to be good enough. So I remember when I first started out, I would, you know, try and plan two weeks in advance. And I'd spend all the, like any moment that I thought about it, I'd be like, oh yeah, let me add that to the lesson plan and this done in the third. And there are days where the the lessons that I literally only where I bounded the time that I had to spend on it were the best lessons. And those lessons that I like kept coming back to and kept picking up and putting down actually flopped. So, um, you know, just making sure to 
be cognizant of that as well. And then, you know, along those same lines, paying attention to those moments of inspiration. So if I am during a night and weekend time where I have reverse priority time and inspiration strikes me, you know, going and writing down just enough to make sure that when I come back to it on Tuesday afternoon, I can flesh it out, but not taking that as an excuse to, oh, wait, so this is clearly a time where I need to focus on my work. So um, paying attention to those moments of inspiration, but not letting it take over your reverse priority time, if that makes sense. Oh my gosh, so much good advice. <laughs> like, um, this is just, it's like, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is brilliant. Like, I hadn't really thought about the idea of reverse priorities. And I love this attention to like focusing on the nourishment of you and your body. Like, I think we need to do more of that. Like, how do we nourish ourselves and what does that look like? And phrasing it as kind of like reverse priorities kind of gives, helps me center it. I, I like those two words. Maybe we should offer up two words <laughs> in your practice instead of the one. Um, yeah, that was really, really beautiful. It's it's really got me thinking about um, what I could be doing differently in ways to kind of nourish my body and my soul, right, to continue um, in in doing doing this work. Yeah. Yeah, this moment of silence here. I'm just like, you've really got my wheels kind of spinning and thinking about different ways that I could think about setting boundaries. And and, and Joni, I appreciate how you at the beginning, you said, you know, you, I, you haven't got this down. Like it's not, and, and no one we've ever asked this question has said, oh, yes, by the way, I figured out right. how to run my life <laughs> and feel great about it. Um, but we we do get good advice, and I um, I've got a lot of I I like the realization that there are no real emergencies in our job. Um, that that's one of the perks of our jobs, maybe. But there are times when it can feel like I have to do this right now, or I, I don't know what's going to happen. The you know there's not right. the earth is not going to swallow us up. Um, right. Someone is not going to die. Um, Right. There are things we should do right now, maybe, but not not these true emergencies. So I I think this is uh I think that's that was a word I needed to hear today. Thank you. So yeah, yeah. and I sometimes actually practice the worst case scenario game hmm. <laughs> where I like slam the the realities all the way to the extreme and say, okay, what's the worst that can happen? Mm-hmm. And in playing that game in our role, I was like, okay, the worst, worst that could happen is that like maybe you lose a, a $3 million grant because you didn't respond money or something. <laughs> I'm like, outside of that, which is still, you're still alive. People are still yeah. alive. Um, but outside of that, like the worst that could happen is, oh, you might get a couple of comments on your, your um, feedback from students that, oh, she's very slow in responding to emails. Um, so yeah, like sitting in that space of like, okay, and then what could happen? And then what could happen? And like every and then what could happen? I'm still alive. I still have a way of providing for myself. So I think that's something that I do that's comforting for me. I mean, oh, I and you know, not to keep, but yeah, I think you have it. A lot of good things figured out because I, I mean, just what you were talking about there, Joni. Like I'm having a situation that I'm thinking about, and I'm like, what is the worst thing that could happen? Like they take away this administration role. I'm like. Well, that wouldn't be that bad. (laughs) (laughs) 
It would be bad, but I mean, it like, hey, it like, but play. I mean, that is like, yeah, like you know, someone's waiting at that, you know, like, gosh, I hope they send that form in. <laughs> I mean, like, mm-hmm. but yeah, there could be some some stakes, but yes, that. Thank you for that. I, I I needed to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, I think. Yeah, this question's always really difficult, but sometimes I feel like maybe it's beginning. It's getting a little bit easier to answer because we've all had to teach in and through a pandemic, where it's like slow down. Like it can wait. Yeah. We need to be adaptable and flexible, but like there are some things happening in the world right now that you just need to stop. You just need to stop and find those times to like nourish your body and your soul. So um, yeah, it's not real, not a real emergency. I love the, you're talking about your, your sister, you said was an anesthesiologist. Yeah. Well, she's a CRNA. So I'm like, yeah, you need to, yes, please. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for uh, sharing some of those uh, things that you do to uh, set boundaries and priorities. I know we've got um, you got us thinking a lot about what we could be doing uh, differently to help um, to help us. So could you talk a little bit about the work on developing and validating observational tools that attend to aspects of equitable teaching? Yeah, so um, this work started out of or builds on an analysis that was published in JRME in 2019. And I worked with a team of researchers to outline a set of practices that we observed across classrooms where there was evidence of conceptually oriented instruction and there was evidence of better performance on tests for students based off of their own previous performance um, as one of the many ways that we can think of success for students. And Um, As a next step to that work, I took the lead in developing rubrics. And so one of the projects that is actually, technically this is the last year, but we're getting a no-cost extension to continue working on is validating and further further developing the rubrics. Um, And so part of that work is asking questions like, do these rubrics attend to the things that we claim they attend to? Um, So are they getting at practices that could support students in accessing conceptually under conceptually oriented instruction? Um, Are they practices that can support teachers who are aiming for equity? Another question is, can people outside of the development team use the rubrics? Mm. Um, And what does it take to train people to use the rubrics? Um, How stable are the little indicators within the rubrics? So that's the type of work that we're, we're in right now. And I literally just got out of a session where I was training 20, well, just under 20 raters in trying to use the rubrics. And it is an interesting task to try and like get people who have no idea, who, who have never thought about these things to start thinking about it and then try to see what you see when you're looking at classroom video data. Mm-hmm. Um, but Another project that's built off of that work is a project that I'm doing with Erica Litke as the PI. She's at University of Delaware and Heather Hill, um, who's co-PI at Harvard University. 
And what we're doing on that project is we're working to take the rubrics that we're developing and trying to validate and all that stuff in the one space. And we're working with math instructional coaches to use the rubrics or observational tools um, to support them in their work with teachers. So more specifically, we're using a coaching cycle that Heather Hill and others designed in working with coaches to use the MQI observational tool. And we're trying to, to design a similar coaching model for the equity and access rubrics. And um, one of the things that excites me about that work is that, you know, we have resources and curricula and routines of practice that we as a field use to support teachers, but we're in the we're only now in the process of developing some of those same resources for coaches, professional developers, math teacher educators. Um, and what I've heard from coaches that we're working with is that these are the types of things that they say they need mm. because, you know, they say things like, oh, they support us in developing a shared language around teaching practices and teaching moves. They support us in developing a vision of what this can actually look like in real classrooms. Um, and using the rubrics along with a cadre of classroom video data supports images as in more than one image of what this can look like in classrooms. And they support us in seeing the same practice implemented with different styles, but accomplishing similar things. So nuancing that. Um, they support us in unpacking, understanding, um, you know, taking the conversation well beyond a dichotomous, well, this is good teaching and this is not good teaching to see that there are layers and levels to this thing. Um, and they help us in identifying growth in our teachers and in examining areas of elevation in their practice. So, so beyond using the rubrics for the purpose of research and discussing instruction at scale, it appears that they have potential to be a tool for support, for reflection, and for framing conversations around practice that could be helpful for coaches, but also for teachers too. So when you think about the work that you've done in developing and validating these different tools, are there one or two things that through that process and through that collaboration with others that you've been able to draw inspiration from that in your own work in pre-service teacher education? Like thinking about your work with coaches and this development of these tools, are there things that you've brought in that have helped you kind of with that alignment in working with um, your pre-service teachers? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I sort of kind of talked about this earlier, but in my interactions with teachers, whether it be in the methods course or in a pre uh, professional development setting, I catch myself doing things. I'm like, oh, you know, what could elevate that interaction is if you said this. And mm. so then the next time that I go to say something, I think about that. Um, I've also noticed that some of the, some of the people that were training as raiders, they say that they use it in their personal interactions with their friends and with their family as well. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. 
So like the notion of um, positioning students as competent is what we called it. But the notion of expanding your view of what you're circling in on when you explicitly say things to, to each other and, you know, expanding that to include a variety of things. And then when you when you are explicitly circling in on something as good or productive or useful or valuable or original, like being explicit in like giving detail and saying, giving a rationale for why you think it's original, why you think it's valuable, why you think it's. So I found that to be the most striking thing for me is that like beyond a teacher student dynamic, the, the, the practices are useful when we're interacting with people more relationally mm-hmm. in general. I love that. That's powerful, right? To think about here's the, the yeah. how we're using these tools and ways in our classroom context, but then how can you use these tools and ways of just interacting relationally and humanly with other, other folks, like taking that moment to just pause and really try to understand what someone's trying to say to you or being very clear about like, I know um, in some of the work that I've done, um, some students have talked to me about how it helped them kind of relate to their kids because they would just stop and say, what I hear you saying is this, like just even rephrasing it back. Like, this is what I heard you saying. They're like, no, miss, that's not what I said. (laughs) Come on, mom. This is what I said. Right. Right. And then just taking that, taking that tool of practice in the classroom and then applying it into different contexts. So when you think about um, your scholarly work, um, what are the ways that you've used this work to support educators to empower and honor historically marginalized students? Um, in the mathematics classroom and beyond? Yeah, so um, I try to model some of the practices that come up in my research. I also, so there's another project that I didn't talk about earlier, but it was funded this past fall. And I'm working with people at UW and someone at SMU Um, And we're working to team up with district and school leaders in thinking about and developing anti-racist leadership practices. And so there's a lot of things that I understand and know and can talk about in that space. But there are a lot of things that I'm learning from the district leaders and from the school leaders. And so you know, like some of the practices that we talked about here, opening up space for that, for them to feel comfortable sharing their thoughts and sharing something that might feel unconventional is a big thing that I take into that space to try and empower the district leaders and the school leaders that I work with. Um, So yeah, I guess my biggest thing, (laughs) it seems like it's a theme throughout this whole interview Mm -hmm. is trying to like the things that I that I learn about in my research trying to like bring it in all aspects of my life whether it's teaching um, researching or interactionally working with um, colleagues yeah so in this latest work that you had that you said it's just started up in this last fall is really focused on more like anti-racist teaching and helping leaders and coaches and districts kind of engage in that work in their communities. 
Yeah. As, yeah. as a way to try to empower. Right. Um, right. Right. So we're thinking about like, it's sort of kind of the idea that people don't teach in a vacuum. And mm-hmm. so what are some practices or yeah, what are some practices or dispositions that district leaders or school leaders can have that can support, promote, empower the teachers in their work in trying to create these spaces for students? Um, yeah. And this so, is not like, yeah. Oh, so sorry. Uh, no, I was just going to say, I was like, I was just thinking about what she just said and like the, the challenges we're facing as a country right now with all the different legislation that's coming down, the laws that are coming down and the ways that teachers are going to be able to engage in this work um, where they feel empowered to do so because there is a lot of fear in engaging in this type of work because now there are laws, right? So what are we doing to disrupt and dismantle in ways that um, do the things we know that are good, right? Instead of what's happening right now. Yeah. So I was just going to point at, sorry, I was just point at like, is this like the, the, this new project, it feels like where you're talking about alignment before with regards to beliefs and practices within your teaching and and what you're doing within these research projects. So then that's like creating an environment that's in line to the kind of teaching that you're supporting. Is that kind of the, just, Hey, I'm not doing this. And like, there's a leadership structure that's around me that is not in alignment versus like, Hey, how do we create an environment for this sort of stuff uh, to be promoted and, um, and encouraged? Right. Right. That's exactly right. You said it better than I could. <laughs> well, was, I was just playing off your word. I mean, it feels like that. I mean, there's definitely these themes you're seeing through there. Like, Hey, the, like, it's not just this space. It's like these things come together and like, how do we, like, there is this theme throughout. Um, and I like, <laughs> I'm taking notes, Joni. <laughs> I'm taking some notes. So Joni, what are some resources um, you would recommend for those interested in learning more about the work that you do? Yeah, so um, in terms of the project about developing and validating the rubrics and the project about using the rubrics and supporting math instructional coaches in their work, we have websites websites for both of those projects, and I can provide them for you all so that you can um, include them in the show notes. Yeah, that would that would be wonderful. Are there any other things that you'd like to to share with us? Like, here's some things coming up. Let's like, hey, give a shout out. Anything that you'd like to share? Yeah, well, we are currently recruiting partners to work with and think with us on the coaching project. And if you go to the site, you'll see the contact information for for um, who to contact. Um, so we're we're looking for people who are interested in doing that work, who are interested in um, whether it's you're a district leader or a school leader who has instructional coaches who you're like, oh, yeah, this sounds like great training that I want. Um, or if you're someone who knows someone who knows someone. So um, that's the thing that's burning in my mind in terms of like, Oh, what do I want the the community to know about? And we'll definitely link that in the show notes, this uh, opportunity for further collaboration uh, with folks. So thank you. 
uh, for sharing, Joni. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was great. Thanks again for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. If you would like to hear more, please subscribe to the podcast. We hope that you're able to take action on something that you just heard and interact with other math teacher educators. Also, did you know that AMTE has another podcast, the Math Teacher Educator Podcast? The MTE podcast accompanies the latest edition of the Mathematics Teacher Education Journal and has authors discuss the work they've submitted for publication. Find a link to the MTE podcast in the show notes for this episode.